Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. I, oh my goodness, I am so excited to share with you this interview. This is probably one of my favorite interviews I have ever done on Animals to the Max. And the reason why is because we cover a variety of different wildlife topics, but we also learn, and I say we, you know, as you as the listeners as well, I hope you will learn so much about all different types of animals. And so, and plus, it's also an exciting episode because we have a celebrity guest on. That is correct. We have a celebrity author and conservationist. His name is Carl Safina. He has written seven different books, many of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list. He's been featured in the National Geographic. He hosted a TV show on PBS. He's written for the Huffington Post. The list goes on. And he has traveled the world. Literally, he's traveled the world, and he has been to some of the most exotic places, and he's had some of the most incredible wildlife experiences I'm extremely envious of, but hey, uh, but it's great because he gets to share those experiences. And so we focus mainly on this podcast. We focus on his book, most recent book called Beyond Words, where we um, basically it, it has three different focal points in this book. We talk about elephants wolves and killer whales and of course this is carl's work out in the field observing these beautiful animals i seriously cannot wait for you all to listen to this podcast now not only do we talk about those focal points the elephants the wolves and the killer whales we also talk about different things as well like elephants in captivity trophy hunting we you know we also discuss his favorite wildlife encounter his famous ted talk which has been seen by over two million people what other animals think and feel i'll make sure to include that in the show notes but just just a phenomenal interview an intelligent guest i'm so excited to share this interview with carl safina Thank you. First of all, nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. And you know, Carl, it was like a shot in the dark. I'm a huge fan of your book, you know, Beyond Words. And you can look at my tethered copy right here. Oh, great. great. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been on many airplanes. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to send you an email and say, hey, would you want to come on the podcast? Like I said, shot in the dark. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate oh, it. Well, thanks for your interest. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I learned so much from your book. And, you know, by the way, of course, you're a famous author, conservationist, the author of seven books, correct? Yes. So you have to keep track. Did you always want to be an author? I, well, when I was in um, maybe a senior in high school and definitely as an undergrad, there were uh, several books that I read that thrilled me. And I always thought, wow, someday... I would like to try writing a book. So um, it wasn't an ambition from when I was a little kid, but, you know, certainly from when I was in college, it was always in the back of my mind. Not what, you know, I didn't, I wasn't an English major. I wasn't trying to be a writer, but um, writing was something that I, I never disliked doing anyway. And, um, I always thought, well, you know, I think I could sort of write like like this with some of the books that I really loved. And that was always rolling around my mind. Mm -hmm. Now, was it hard like to break into the industry? Like I'm not an author. I don't know. I mean, was it hard? Was there there a lot of rejection? Yes. Um, 
my first book, which wound up winning various awards, was rejected by 12 publishers. And that was getting extremely depressing for me because I had put a tremendous amount of work off to the side and really disrupted all my professional momentum to try to write this book. And it, it certainly looked like it was crashed and burned at the expense of several years of work and quite a few thousands of dollars of grant money that, you know, it looked wasted. But then one publisher took it and then the book did very well, you know, and um, changed my life because after that I, I was told by people, you should just keep writing books and we can go, we can go to the meetings. You know, you don't have to come to all these meetings. You can write books. It's going to help. So, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Cause I mean, I work in the television industry, so it's like, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's around the same thing about so much rejection and you know what I mean? Well, I tell, I, I teach a course every spring, uh, that has to do with writing and communicating. And I've made the point several times in every class that, um, Success is not a matter of succeeding. Success is a matter of withstanding rejection. If you have a high threshold for withstanding rejection, you will succeed. I love that. I want to get that like in my office right now. I'm going to get that like blown up right now, Carl. Okay, so let's go way back. So you, you grew up in New York. But yes, I was born in Brooklyn and I lived there until I was 10. And then we moved to the Long Island suburbs when I was 10 years old. Okay, so just basically upon doing research, you and I have something in common. You want to hear it? Yeah. Early childhood, we both raised pigeons. That's, well, you're the first. Let me say that. You're the, you're <laughs> the, I think you might be the only person I've ever met my age or younger who raised pigeons. I, yeah. I, you know, some of my uncles raised pigeons, but that's definitely a vanishing thing. Where did you raise pigeons? So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Ruby Creek, Idaho. And my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Garen, actually had homing pigeons, or actually not homing. He had homing, and then he had tumbler pigeons. Anyway, he ended up giving me a couple uh, pairs, and I ended up breeding them, and uh -huh. I loved them. Yeah, I I loved them too. Yeah, I I have a warm spot for for pigeons of all kinds, you know, and that was definitely a major experience in my life. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love them. So so what so what breed did you have? Tumblers, homing? Oh, homers, only homers. Homers, sorry. Okay, yeah. homers. I don't yeah. know. You know, from the time I was little, I, I've always been I've always been very particular about a lot of things. Like it has to be this certain way. And I I thought I thought homers were simply the most I, I, I guess I thought they were just the most interesting because they were the most um well, they were Homeric, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, no matter what got thrown at them, they would try to find their way home. You know, every day for them was the Odyssey. And um, I really, I really just admired that so much. And the idea that we could take them on long car rides to visit relatives and then just let them out and they would be in the coop when I got home much, much later. I, I just thought that was you know, phenomenally cool. Because wow. I, I was, you know, I was very young. I was between the ages of seven and 10 when I had those pigeons. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, you, you, you did a lot better than me. Like ours are, I actually never released mine. They never really came back, but. <laughs> oh, well we, we flew ours every day and, uh, and we, we used to take them on trips and show people. Actually the first public talk I ever gave was in second grade. The teacher asked me to come and talk about my pigeons. So I brought two pigeons to class and I, I, I talked about the pigeons and how you take care of them while I was holding one of them in the front of the class. And then at the end, we threw it out the window and it went home. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So can we talk about your book, which I, like I said, I'm in love with beyond words. Absolutely. I, uh, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? Well, it took two years from the start to the day I hit send which I thought was remarkably quick, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot in there that is from before I was writing the book. There's, you know, there's various stories and anecdotes and a lot of experience that got in there, you know, that happened over several decades. But, but when I started writing and I started doing the field work specifically for the book until the time I stopped, that was two years, oh, just about to the week. Okay. Okay. And then for those of you who are not familiar, please go out and get a copy of this book. It's fantastic. One of my favorite animal books, but you basically break it down into three different sections. So we have elephants, we have wolves, and we have killer whales. Right. Right. And yes. there, there is a, there's a fourth section in there. And um, um, that's about various things about behavior, behavioral studies. There's a lot about dogs in there and stuff like that as well. But yes, those are the three focal animals. But there's, I don't I never counted up how many other things are mentioned, but there's probably a couple of dozen species at least that come and go. A lot. And I'm such a nerd. I literally like on the plane, I had notes that I was taking just interesting stuff that I, that I just learned uh, just little things, you know, that I, I learned from the book. I really, really, I, I found it so interesting. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. I'm glad you did. Yes. Okay. So you, okay. So we talk about three different like focal points, elephants, wolves, killer whales. Did you have a favorite? I had three favorites out of that group. <laughs> I think though I was the most moved and the most emotionally affected by the elephants. You worked with Dr. Cynthia Moss, who's going to be on the podcast, by the way. Oh, so fantastic. Oh, that's really excellent. Wonderful. Yeah. So tell, so tell us about that for, I mean, just for, for listeners who have not read your book, you went to Kenya, correct? Yeah. I spent about a month in Kenya and I went to, I went to Cynthia Moss's site in, well, her site is Amboseli National Park. I went to Samburu Reserve. And then I also spent a couple of days at the Sheldrick Trust, which is the orphanage for elephant babies whose parents have been killed mostly by poachers and um and daphne uh sheldrick was was there uh she just passed away so that's the end of an era she was quite an amazing person but the the orphanage is going very strong they have uh, unfortunately they have too much business i've actually been there i mean just and just yeah right uh -huh. there and out i guess in Nairobi, you know nairobi and yeah what affected you the most just was it just with the poaching or just seeing dr moss and her researchers like what affected you the most what affected me the most was that the elephants themselves are such they're such a magnificent and peaceful presence and they are so empathic 
toward one another. They're, you know, they're very devoted to each other. And they're there are hundreds of elephants in that overall population in in quite a few dozen families and the families you know everybody knows who everybody is they they understand you know the different families know different other families as individuals they 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 have different roles in their own family they gain status not by fighting for it but just just because um Elders are more respected, so as they age, they gain status, and leadership comes with age and knowledge. And um, they're just, they do lots and lots of very interesting things. Every day for them is epic because of how far they come from and where they go back to. They, they come down from the hills. They walk many miles a day. They, they're incredible survivors, and they are gentle and and very peaceful with one another and then what do we do we kill them well we kill them because we want to carve their teeth and if we simply waited for them to die they would have bigger teeth so the killing really broke my heart i have to say i i i have not been the same really since then and um, that's why i say i think i was really the most moved by being with the elephants but after after being there a while, and I, I was with Cynthia a little bit. I was in the field more with her protege, Vicky Fishlock, and her, her other research assistant, Katito. You know, often we would just sit and watch and watch and watch, and then elephants would move, and we'd move a little bit. We would sit and watch. And, and after a few weeks of, of doing that, I really couldn't imagine ever not being around wild elephants again. I mean, I knew I was going right home, and there wouldn't be wild elephants, but... It was just a, such a breathtakingly beautiful thing to have in my life. So, yeah, it was very moving. Yeah, and let's like talk. I mean, like what got me in the book was Philo, which you showed a, which you shared a picture of. Yes. You're like almost brought tears to my eyes. So, can you tell a little bit about Philo, please, for the listeners? Well, Philo, what, the elephants live in families where the the females never leave the families, but when the males become adolescents, they leave and they start wandering around with other males, sometimes solitarily as they get older. So Philo was about 15 years old, and he had just recently left or been in the process of leaving his family. And he was, uh, he was photographed by, uh, this was in Samburu Reserve, he was photographed by somebody who was there that I was, um, I was working with, he was, he was a guy from, actually from Disney World, you know, and Philo was around. And then uh, four days after he was photographed, he was shot several times, including uh, once in the back of the head. He must have already been down, thrashing around, and they just executed him. And and then, the, you know, then they basically cut their face off to get their tusks out. And how, uh, really, how human beings can can be this way is... I don't I don't exactly want to say it's beyond me because it's very obvious that we are incredibly brutal creatures but I don't understand it really at all that the uh, the ability to do violence at that scale to to kill an animal of that size and not care about much else is um, is horrifying. And I, I understand that a lot of poachers, they need money. They're very poor, partly by desperation, although it's a, it's big business for the people who get and traffic these tusks. 
those people are are not poor starving people but often the often the poachers themselves are it's just you know the human condition is just quite miserable in many parts of the world there are just throngs and throngs of exceptionally poor people with dismal prospects in life and and more and more of us all all the time so you know the very poor people harm the world in in their ways and the very rich people commission most of that harm yeah i mean what do you think the answer is i mean like a lot of people say education is the answer this and that and like i even talked to one of my like mentors he was my you know biology professor and he just said that's just a load of crap like they know what's going on i mean like what is the answer? I mean, is it education or? Well, I think the answer, since to me the driving problem is that the, there are just too many of us. And I don't think that's simply educating in the form of telling people not to do it or that it's it's a terrible thing to kill an elephant because they don't think so. It's not because they've never heard that it is. It's that they don't think so. So, um to get the human population down, the only thing that works is to empower women so they uh, don't want to have six or eight or ten children. Most of them don't want to have six or eight or ten children anyway. But if you give them the rights that women have in most of the developed world, the, the population of most of the developed world is flat or declining. And that's because women who have control over their lives and can go into business and get bank loans and um and you know not watch half of their children die they have smaller families that's really the only thing that that works so in a way i would say i don't you can like elephants or not like elephants i don't really care but um I'd like you to be in charge of your own life and and then you'll want to have a small family and that'll work for everybody Mm -hmm. Work for you and it'll work for elephants and there'll be some room in the world for everything else. Mm -hmm. And just back onto elephants. I mean, what do you think about them in captivity? I think captivity is, um, well, you you asked specifically about elephants in captivity. So we'll just keep it to that. And I'll say that I think that there are some captive situations that are, a lot better than others. I've seen elephants in captivity where they are in stable groups and they have um, a, a regular sort of routine, but the routine is also broken up a lot by the keepers who are trying to keep things interesting for them. They don't look miserable to me by by any means. I think I, I uh, my first trip for the book actually was with a group of captive elephants in one of these um, sort of zoos slash entertainment parks. And I did not put it in the book. I wrote it all up, but I didn't put it in the book because the the instant I went to see free living elephants, they're, they're just so much more interesting and their lives are so much richer. But I don't think that these other elephants, several of whom were born in captivity and several of whom were, were wild caught many decades ago, because one of them was 60 years old. Um, I didn't feel like their lives were miserable, but there are other captive settings where their lives are very miserable. And um, in many captive settings, they're they're quite brutalized. So it's a whole range. Um, uh, ironically, the guy who took the picture of Philo alive that I shared with you 
was an elephant keeper from Disney World, and he went to Africa because he wanted to see how elephants live so he could be a better elephant keeper. And what he came away feeling was at least my elephants are not going to get shot and that the wild elephants lived in some ways a lot worse because they were frightened a lot of the time. There, there were groups of orphaned elephants trying to group up as families. There were small orphan elephants that had starved and died that, you know, carcasses were lying around. Um, it's not really a picnic for wild elephants either at this point. Um, and that's not to advocate catching any of them. I, I, I'm against catching any for captivity. Mm-hmm. I think they can be kept captive and not be made miserable, the ones that are in captivity anyway. And, and many of the ones that are in captivity, their, their situation could be vastly improved. I'm not at all advocating catching them, but it's not a very good time to be a free-living elephant. It's a, it's a very dark time. And Ambicelli, I asked Vish, Vicky Fishlock how many of the families had had direct experience with poachers. And she thought for a minute, and her answer was, in thinking about it, I can't think of any family that has not had somebody shot or killed so, I mean, imagine that that's the life you're living. You know, you're, you, it's easy to imagine because most of us are peaceful people. Imagine you are a peaceful person in your neighborhood and every single family you know has had somebody shot at some point by terrorists. That's what life is now like for elephants, wild, free elephants. That's their life. They're completely terrorized. They've been killed by the hundreds of thousands of them have died in the last 10 years being shot by people so we can make bracelets and statues out of two of their teeth. It's it's absolutely horrific. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm just so let's talk about grief. Talk about elephants who lose a family member. Can we talk about that? Yes. So, I mean, one of the one of my unfortunate realizations is that humans can not only experience grief, but we generate an incredible amount of it because we cause elephants to feel the the shock and sadness of the grief of losing family members. Many of them lose family members who they rely upon to lead them to the things they need to survive. They know where the water is during droughts. They know where the different foods are at different times of the year. If you kill the mother of a of an elephant that is still nursing, they nurse for a few years. If, if you kill the mother, that baby elephant dies, even within its own family. It uh, you know, it's not they can't run to the store and buy more milk for the orphan. If the if the lactating mother dies That baby is out of luck no matter how well the other ones try to keep it safe, which they try to do. But they also can't share milk because they only make enough milk to keep one baby going at a time. So um, the only way an orphan who's a nursing orphan whose mother is killed can possibly survive is if there's another elephant in the family who has been nursing who just lost her own baby and still has milk, then she will take that other one. But, you know, they live on pretty thin margins there. It's not like um, they can't really compensate for all this death very well. And they know who's missing. And, and uh, 
They act very sad about it for a long time, and, and it's a shock to the family. In fact, for years afterwards, there's less, there are fewer babies born in a family that loses family members. They don't, the babies that are born, even though they have mothers, they don't survive as well. I mean, these things ripple because they're all relying on each other to do what it takes to survive. I'm sorry. I'm just like, oh my God, this just, whew. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's hope for the elephants? I'm sorry. I'm like <laughs> getting depressed over here, but I mean, well, is there I mean, there are, there are people who, who've spent many, many years fighting on their behalf and there are organizations who fight on their behalf. And the hope is that those groups will succeed and that their strategies will work. There's been a lot of positive progress in the last few years. There's been China, which has been the bottomless pit for ivory, has announced that they're going to phase out their ivory imports and uh, and institute a ban. There have been bans in other countries, but everybody is constantly um, having to make the case over and over again and fight these things. Even in the U.S., just trying to ban uh, elephant imports or ivory imports or ivory sales in the U.S. or Europe is a gigantic controversial thing because there's money at stake for the people who do this, but um, there's been progress. And then all of us can help by contributing money to the groups that are actually there fighting for it. You know, find the groups that are doing the work that you agree with and you like and send them however much you can afford to send them. Some people can send them $5. Some people can send them a million dollars. That's what it takes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, just on the whole trophy hunting debate. Well, the trophy hunting debate is complicated because everybody who does not want anyone to kill an elephant, which includes me, tends to conclude, tends to confuse the trophy hunting part with the ivory poaching part. And even I have emotionally confused that with myself at times because I, I, I'm against all of it. But what is driving the elephants extinct is not the, the hunting where how many in, in what place get killed in exchange for a ridiculous amount of money that goes to help keep the habitat in that place that can support elephants and other animals. That what's really driving the elephants extinct is the uncontrolled poaching, where even in the most protected places, people come in and they just shoot elephants and they just cut their faces off and take their tusks. The money goes to crime syndicates. It does not go in any way to helping support the elephants. It costs an unbelievable amount of money to try to then field rangers who are you know well enough equipped to thwart the poaching. And it becomes a war. It's actually a war. So it's the war around poaching, illegal killing, that is actually driving the elephants extinct. The, the managed trophy hunting is not doing that, even though it's completely repulsive that anybody would want to go and shoot an elephant. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. And there are people who say, well, you know, my trophy hunting is the only thing that helps support these animals and it keeps this land um it's true that that money does keep a lot of private land open that can support animals i mean if those if those hunting 
holdings go, they usually go to cattle and then elephants and nothing else can live there. But what I don't understand is if you claim to love the animals so much that you're willing to spend $50,000 to go kill them, you know, why don't you just go there and enjoy them and still write a $50,000 check to keep the place going if you can afford that kind of money? I don't understand why you have to go kill them. It's in my experience... It's, it's vastly harder to get a really good photograph than it is to get a really good shot, I think. I mean, I don't shoot, um, but um, I've looked down the barrel of a, of a gun with a scope on it, and the bullet goes where you, where you tell it to go, whereas uh, it's very hard to take a really good photograph. A lot of things have to be right. So to me, there's more skill and challenge involved in doing something non-lethal. And then, you know, you can think a lot better of yourself because you haven't killed anything. So, yeah, that's just me, though. Yeah, I agree with you, <laughs> like 100%. I mean, just, okay, well, let's move on to the wolves. And this one really struck home with me. So I'm in Idaho. So it's like <laughs> the yes, big wolf. In, in Idaho, um, Idaho is like wolf killing central all over again. Yes. Yes. And I actually the, did this. The hatred of wolves in the West is is really, I, I would say, irrational because it's not, it does not correspond to anything wolves actually do to wild, uh, to livestock, to cattle and sheep in, in terms of the money generated. Or I mean, the people raising those cattle and sheep are mostly killing them. You know, the cows are all killed by people. The wolves kill them. I mean, it's, it's all about money. So if if you can simply pay them for the ones that the wolves kill instead of the ones that we commission the killing of by eating beef, it shouldn't really matter to the cattle owners. But they hate wolves with a with a hatred that is irrational and it feels actually racial. The, the irrationality of that hatred is the same bias irrationality that you that you sense when when people hate other kinds of people. That's been my impression. Mm-hmm. It's bad. And matter of fact, my my highest <laughs> social media posts, I just because I was I was doing a podcast with uh, Maggie Howell from the Wolf Conservation Center in New York. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And I just said, what are your thoughts on wolves? And just flooded with hundreds of comments, people going after each other. It was like this. Yeah. There are a oh. few animals that make people insane. And get them irrational. And I've been involved with several of those animals in the course of all my conservation work. And wolves are certainly one of them. In fact, wolves are probably the one that makes people the most irrational. There are a few animals that people get exceptionally passionate over, but wolves are the only ones that have in our culture, in the Western, meaning European culture, not Western U.S., but, you know, Western with a capital W culture, wolves are, I think, the only animals that got all tangled up with, you know, Satan and um, and religious um, overtones and religious entanglements so that wolves were believed they weren't just problematic animals. They were, they were believed to be truly evil and incarnations of the devil. Uh, and that got all wound up with 
witch burning. I mean, it, it just a, a complete, complete mess of misconceptions. And that hatred followed them to the New World, where Europeans have always had an exceptional fear and hatred of wolves, whereas the natives love wolves. And, and in fact, in North America, wolves do not attack people at all. They're not at all dangerous. And in, in a place like, um, well, in a place like Yellowstone, for instance, people are, every now and then, people are killed by bears. Uh, and throughout the West, people are occasionally attacked by mountain lions, but wolves do not attack people. They, they're afraid of humans, and they don't view them as prey. They're certainly capable uh, size-wise. They eat things that are much bigger than people, but they do not, they do not attack anybody. And you, you know that there have been many, many, many thousands of hikers all through Yellowstone that wolves have been watching, and they've never bothered anybody. They... They're, they're simply not dangerous to human beings, um, especially in the Americas. That may not be as true throughout Central Asia over the centuries. But um, anyway, so the fear of wolves and the hatred of wolves is, uh, is completely out of proportion with anything wolves actually do. And as I said, the natives love and respect and revere wolves. There have been um, lawsuits by native groups in uh, Minnesota and Michigan, for instance, try to stop um, wolf hunting from being opened and that kind of thing. Yeah. Let's just talk about that. So first of all, I learned, like I said, I told you, I learned so much about your book, but what I love so much about your section wolves, I learned so much about their social structure and just the unfortunate trickle down effect when you take out, you know, an alpha female or an alpha male. And like, let's just talk about Oh six, which like broke my heart, (laughs) but let's talk about Oh six, I guess. Yes. Right. There's, there's actually, um, there's actually an entire book, a new book called American wolf about Oh six, the wolf called Oh six. And I, I wrote about her quite a bit. This other book, um, which is new is entirely about her anyway. Um, she was an exceptional female wolf, an ex- exceptionally um, independent thinker, I guess you would say. She did a lot of things that are not average for a wolf to do um, in terms of um, courting males and sort of dumping males that seemed like they would be perfectly adequate mates. And then um, they didn't seem up to her standards and she would leave. That's very atypical then she um she got this one mate and brought his brother along so they formed a trio um that became the lamar canyon pack i should say a pack is just a nuclear family we really shouldn't call them packs we should call them families because that's what they are it's the breeding adults once in a while a third adult like an uncle the, you know, the brother of this breeding male, but it's basically mom and dad, possibly another adult and their children of several generations. So they live in nuclear families and we live in almost identical nuclear families where it's the mom and dad and the children of, of various ages. And then as the children become adolescents, they leave to try to find their own place in the world. And that's exactly what wolves do. Wolves have males that are devoted to taking care of their families as well. They don't just mate and leave like many animals do. Like elephants, for instance, do not have pair bonds. 
They don't have families in the sense of a male being involved. Chimpanzees do not have any male parental care of babies at all, but wolves do. Wolves are more like us than other than any other animal that exists. And there's a huge implication to that, which is that dogs' ancestors are wolves. The only ancestors of all our dogs are wolves. And dogs can live with us because they understand our social structure. Um, I'm looking at my dog on the rug right now, and there's a couple of bones on the rug, and it's just like we lived with wolves 20,000 years ago. We still have them lying around with their bones lying around in our own habitations because we understand each other. We do not have our closest relative chimpanzees because they don't live like us. They can't understand us, and they're incompatible with the way we live. But, But wolves are totally compatible with us. So anyway... So this Lamar Canyon pack with with um, this wolf named O6 as the breeding female were the most famous wolves in the world. They were seen every day by people who came to Yellowstone just to see wolves. They were really the only wolves that were seen very regularly because of where they lived. It was very viewable. And uh, people spent about $30 million a year going to Yellowstone. The, the people who went just to see wolves spent $30 million. Bucks. Um, and um, then uh, in 2012, they went from being completely protected under the Endangered Species Act to being completely unprotected right outside the park. Yes. And Yellowstone is a park that is much too small for all the animals that live there. It was never intended to be a wildlife reserve. It was intended to be a scenic place. So it was mainly built around the geysers and the mountain scenery. It's very brutal in the winter. Up at 7,000 feet, almost all the prey animals leave. All the deer, Almost all the deer leave. Most of the elk leave. Many of the buffalo try to leave. The pronghorn leave. And the wolves get marooned there. So what happens is they tried to leave, but they were now um, in open season all of a sudden. Nobody told them. And as soon as these wolves uh, that were very well-known, very popular, wandered a little bit outside the park, somebody shot the... I can't remember which one got shot first now. I think it was 06 who got shot first. And then the uncle, 754, although, no, he got shot first. I'm pretty sure he got shot first. Then, then 06 got shot. And at that point, the whole family just shattered because their mother had been shot. And the male was, uh, his two main hunting partners were his brother and his mate. The, the, um, the yearlings are not very good hunters. They, they're very good chasers, but they, it was really the, that uncle 754, he was the main takedown artist in the hunts. And uh, the male is wandering around trying to find, you know, relocate them or figure out what happened. The whole family fell apart. And um, that was the end of that. And, you know, the it's it's really just like you're in a happy family and then two of your family members get killed and, and things fall apart. That's what happened to them. So um, another one then got shot starving at a chicken coop. The, the father lost his whole territory and all his hunting support at the start of winter. I thought he was doomed and he managed to survive 
And um, a few years later, he had a new, a new mate, a new hunting territory, and a new family. So the whole trajectory of their lives changed. And with animals that have that kind of intensely well-integrated social structure, the, the survivors of a shooting sometimes suffer more than the ones that actually just get killed on the spot. Yeah, I just... I just can't wrap my brain. Like, I just can't wrap my brain around someone who'd want to go kill such a majestic animal. It's just like me wanting to kill my dog. Like, I just, I'm not wanting to, but it's just like, it just, it just blows my mind. It really does. Well, I, it's, it's very, um, well, there are a lot of words that could describe how I feel about it. Um, It's, it is a little mind boggling, you know, but also it's, it's it's very it's deeply deeply frustrating that after we killed all the wolves south of Canada and then we learned that ecosystems without wolves are really unbalanced that the wolf has a place that the wolf is not dangerous to people we learned all these things and then we didn't learn them and that hatred spanned decades of total absence it's not like a new generation grew up without the hatred of wolves it's like they learned to hate wolves and it came back as soon as the wolves were there the hatred was there to greet them and that's very very dispiriting i guess is a good word for my main emotional response to it um you know in the vernacular it's just kind of one big ugh all over again we have to try to climb this hill while these animals are just shot and their families are shattered and they live in danger all the time and the other thing is that research shows that if you shoot the older ones the remaining younger ones because they're not as good hunters they start attacking sheep and cows So there you go. You make the problem worse, which in a way, I kind of think they like making the problem worse because then they can say, see, these wolves are killing our sheep and cows. We need to kill all the wolves because that's what they want to say. So we in in many areas of life, we have failed. We've stopped being able to have any conversations or learn anything from one another because we refuse to talk to each other. We refuse to. keep open minds. We just increasingly, we're just in our own isolated echo chambers. Um, it's discouraging. Yeah. And I'm not sorry. I'm not trying to bring this down. I just, and it was so discouraging reading this because I mean, I was reading about Oh six and then just, and didn't you, didn't you meet the person who killed her or one of the wolves? No, no. The, the guy who wrote that new book, American Wolf, he did meet the person who killed her. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's, that's an incredible scoop that he got. He really put the time in. And, I don't think um, I could do it. Yeah. So if you want to know what was running through his mind, it is in that guy's book. I think his name is Nate Blakesley. Um, and the book is called American Wolf. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think, I mean, would, would that be difficult for you to interview the person or I guess write about the person who killed 06 or would you go in with an open mind? Um, it wouldn't be impossible. I, I, I am capable of, I mean, I've done this a few times where I've been on the opposite side of a conservation issue and I've 
been able to meet at least meet the humanity that exists within the people who are and have a totally opposing view to mine it it doesn't mean that i'd be likely to come out any closer to their view it it usually means i understand their view better um even if i even if i think it's not a constructive thing or even if i think that 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 undervaluation of other living things or that desire to do violence is is still as wrong as i thought going in but um yeah i i I could talk to somebody who did that Mm -hmm. i don't think i'd have a lot of fun talking to them but i certainly could (laughs) i did and you know carl it's so funny so i not funny but i did my whole wolf podcast with the wolf conservation center then i decided you know what i'm gonna have someone on the opposite end and i interviewed someone and i actually i took from that i didn't change my views like you said but just trying to work you know what i mean it was interesting to hear their take on it yeah well the more the more that kind of discussion could go on the more likely it would be that things would move to a more constructive middle ground but um we're doing less and less good job of talking to one another these days um i I, and i don't mean just you know just in conservation or animals i mean all across all these issues that affect our lives in so many ways things are more polarized than ever before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so we talked about wolves can we touch base on such a just magnificent animal let's talk about killer whales orcas so intelligent just mind blown again the 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 killer whales um i call them killer whales for a couple of reasons one is that all the researchers i know call them killer whales so you just get used to talking that way the the other thing um is that the in the latin name or sinus orca orca means demon from the underworld so i i would rather be called a killer uh you know i'd rather be called killer carl than demon from the underworld so <laughs> i didn't know um, that. <laughs> uh and that you know and they do hunt for a living they do kill things so um to me it's i, I don't i don't feel any denigration in calling them killer whales they're whales who kill things so um it's fairly straightforward to me but a lot of people really don't like that name they they want to call them orcas the other thing is that there's only one species called orsinus orca and in reality there are probably about eight different species of killer whales that have not been formally split yet that's one of the most interesting things about them is that there are various types they call them types they're really species. They they eat totally different things. One type eats only fish. Another type eats only marine mammals. Another type eats only penguins. Another type eats only sharks. They don't interbreed. They don't even socialize or mix at all. And all of those things are hallmarks of separate species. So if you're going to call them orcas, you'd have to come up with yet another name for all the other ones once they're described. So for now, I don't really care. You can call them killer whales or kill them orcas. Doesn't matter to me. Um, either either name is perfectly fine with me. But they are exceptionally exceptionally intelligent. They uh, they're the largest dolphin in the world. They have gigantic brains. They act like they know exactly what's going on. They act like they even have intuitive powers that are um, almost telepathic. I mean, we don't know anything scientifically that is a telepathic. Um, 
capacity, but maybe there's a capacity that we don't know about. Like we didn't understand that there was sonar until somewhere in the 1940s and 50s for bats and the 1960s for dolphins. So what they were, you know, in the 1800s, watching dolphins use sonar would have looked completely mysterious to us. Now we just know, oh, they, they, can, they can tell where that fish is. They can swim around that clear glass in their pool because they have sonar. So there's nothing mysterious about it. So maybe there are other capacities that science will discover. But um, at any rate, until we discover them, they do things that are very mysterious and, um, and have to do with uh, exceptional cognitive abilities intuitive abilities they also stay in family groups they're the only species that we know of where the young ones never leave their mother young males and females stay with their mother for their entire lives and um, occasionally humans do that also but not not if the son <laughs> is very successful or if the daughter is very successful they don't usually stay with their parents for their entire lives but killer whales do um, and they rely on their mother for their whole life. When their mother dies, the rate of uh, the death rate for the surviving young ones goes up because they share all the food that they catch, and they rely on each other a lot. So there is all of that. And they did some, as I say, just mind-boggling things. Like when when they were catching them in the 1970s, when they were catching a lot of them in the Pacific Northwest for these aquariums and these entertainment places like SeaWorld, they would chase these families to exhaustion and try to chase them up into a cove where they could put a net around all of them. And in one of the more epic chases, the the orcas at the surface took the boats up into a cove and there were no babies with them. And it turned out that all the females with babies were doing a stealth run around the backside of a large island. And they managed to evade the boats completely, but then they had spotter planes that found them because eventually they have to come up for air. But they, they had a strategy. I mean, that's the most mind-boggling thing. They had, they had a strategy. We're going to split up. You take the babies over there. We'll decoy them into this cove. And there's no known way that they could have communicated that. But it, it, that's what they did. So they are completely, completely amazing. Mm-hmm. And different, like families have different languages or different. I mean, I guess a lot of people don't want to say languages, but yeah, they have different vocalizations that are um, eat, the people who've worked with them a lot for decades. They can hear the differences between families. They know which family it is, even if they just hear it on a, a microphone that's underwater um, without seeing the whales at all. They know who it is. So, you know, there's really, really a lot a lot, lot going on there. I think that was in a way maybe the most surprising of all the sections that I wrote about. And, um, yeah, and a, a lot of, a lot of mysterious stuff going on with those creatures. Just really incredible. I would just kill no pun intended to see a killer whale out in the wild. What was your first thought when you saw a wild killer whale? Well, I have to say, uh, the first wild killer whales I ever saw was a long time ago. It was about, um, I think it was about 17 years ago, and it was way down in the sub-Antarctic, about 1,000 miles south of New Zealand. So I was on a totally different kind of trip back then. I had not written a book or anything, and, and I saw these killer whales down there. And they, you know, when you see them, they're very startling. 
first of all. They're, because for one thing, they're very, very big. The males can be 30 feet long. It's not, they're not, they say they're the largest dolphin, but they're the largest dolphin by a lot, by a big margin. And, you know, they're painted black and white. It's like a pirate flag. They're, they're so striking and they come blasting through the waves. They're just enormously powerful. And um, everything about them is tremendously impressive. Probably the best place to try to see them is on some of the ferries that um, that travel around in the Pacific Northwest that go to some of those islands um, in uh, the, the, what's called now the Salish Sea. It used to be called the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Some people think of it as Puget Sound, although that's really the lower arm of it. Anyway, they live in there, and I've seen them from the ferries there a couple of times as well. And there are whale-watching boats in that same area, and they specifically try to find the killer whales. They all talk to each other on the radio. So if you want to go see killer whales, go to whale-watching boats out of a place like Friday Harbor or um, I, I guess even Seattle or Vancouver, and uh, you have a pretty decent chance of seeing them there. And they're incredible. Everything about them is incredible. Yeah, and you you stayed with Ken Balcom, correct? Is that his? Is that, Ken yeah, Balcom, yes. Balcom, yes. Famous Nathan killer whale researcher. Yeah, he's been studying them for about forty years, and they know each individual whale by really all they have to see is their fin and the little bit of their back that comes out when they breathe. They know who they are. Um, mm-hmm. They know they know all the family groups. It's 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 just um, it, it's really amazing that level of expertise. And I've been around researchers who have achieved that level of expertise quite a few times now. Well, four or five different times. E- each of the time, uh, you know, each of the animals that I wrote about in the book, um, like those elephant researchers can recognize literally several hundred elephants individually. They have names for all of them. They know which families they are. They know who the members of all the families are. And uh, at least with the elephants, you can see the whole elephant. But with the killer whales, if you see a little bit of their back and their fin, they know exactly who they are right away. It's, it's, it's very humbling to be around that kind of deep knowledge and expertise. It's really wonderful. I mm-hmm. love people like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, what an honor. Maybe I can get him on the podcast, Carl. It, it, just if you give me a good reference, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> so back on to just saying, because you said they were so magnificent when you first saw them. I have a question for you, okay? It's just going to be a random question. You ready for it? Yep. Do you have like one wild experience or one animal encounter that sticks out? I mean, you've been all over the world. Is there one encounter that's just like, wow, that was just my favorite? Well, I, you know, lucky me, it would be impossible to say that one particular encounter was my favorite. I have a, a number of really peak kinds of encounters, but the, the one that has kind of become my standard answer to this kind of question, uh, and I think there's a good reason why it is my standard answer, because it was an amazing, very deeply moving experience was that in the center of the Pacific Ocean, about a thousand miles northwest of Hawaii, there's an island called Laysan Island. 
and it's only about three miles in diameter. And there are, um, I think there are over 10 million seabirds that nest on it, if I recall that number correctly. At any rate, it it roars with birds of of about 15 different species. And almost always we think of the world from land. We're almost always on land. And when we're home or when we're camping, we're always on land. Even if we're on a shoreline, we're on land looking out at the water. But when you're in this place and there are millions of birds who inhabit the entire North Pacific Ocean and they come to this one spot every year to breed and the rest of the year they're hundreds or thousands of miles from shore and you're in the middle of this roaring, roaring amount of living sound and all you see to the whole horizon all around you is the ocean, you feel you get a very inverted sense of what the world is really like. And it's a more accurate sense because most of the living space in the world is actually the ocean. And for almost all of earth's history, all these other creatures were really by far the dominant forces on the planet. And there's a sense of that being there with them, especially early in the morning or late in the day, you know, when it's not really glary and you can really look far and all the colors are really beautiful and the birds are at their most active. And as far as you can see out over the ocean, they're just streaming in and out and they're whirling around overhead. And it's just, it's like, it's like being on earth 50,000 years ago. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'll pick that Man, one. You just like took me there. You just took me there, Carl. Do you need an assistant? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you get sure. that all the time. Sure. You know, my actually my time there, I was there for five days. My time there is in a book called Eye of the Albatross, a, a book that, um, when did that book get published? 2003, I think. Okay. I'm definitely going to read that. I saw that, you know, researching you, but I'm, I'm going to uh, read it. I'm going to pick it up on Amazon. Good. Great. <laughs> Unless you want to send me a signed copy, Carl. I mean, I that would, would be. I'd be happy to send you a signed copy. Let's do that. Do I have your mailing address on my uh, on the emails from you? <laughs> no, but I will send you my personal email so you don't so you don't get the PO box. Yeah, good. Yeah. S- send me the best e- mailing address for you, and and we'll send you a signed copy of the Albatross book. That's great. I would love to do that. Okay, so do you have a okay? Uh, do you have a favorite place to go in the world? I know it's like such an open ended question, but like one place. Yeah. Well, I would say my favorite place in the world. Out of, I mean, I've been to some unbelievably special, fantastic places, but I'll say my favorite place is probably um, Southeast Alaska and the West Coast of British Columbia. That's my that's my favorite place in the world. I would say. Really? Have you seen? And this is so off topic. Have you seen the spirit bears? Um, well, I came I came as close as seeing some white fur on some barbed wire, uh, you know, there are these things called fur traps, believe it or not, where biologists try to get samples of fur from animals. 
uh, to look at DNA and things like that. And they and so they'll string like one strand of barbed wire across a path at about the height where the animal has to rub its back, you know, brush its back as it's going under. So we were looking for those white, they're white black bears. We were looking for them and we got as close as seeing some hair, um, but we didn't see actually one of the black bears. We did see a few grizzlies though. There are quite a few grizzlies in that area. We saw a, a few of them. Yeah. I just, Oh God. Yeah. I would love to be like to see a spirit bear. Like that's top on the bucket list, Carl, right there. Uh-huh. And not a lot of them, you know, they're a minority of that population. So you got to, plan to be there with the right people and spend a few days looking i think sounds good well that's that's definitely my goal okay really quick i know we've gone over but let's talk a little bit about your ted talk which has been seen by well over two million people congratulations very very exciting yeah that's that's wonderful i'm really very very pleased to share these thoughts about what other animals think and feel what life is like to them, how, how vivid life is for them, how much they, like us, try to just stay alive. That's what they're interested in doing. And to be able to share those thoughts and experiences with more than 2 million people is fantastic. That was great. And you just like talk about some of the subjects. And of course, I will put the episode in the show notes. So for all of you listening, you can go check fantastic. this out if you haven't already. Wonderful. Yeah, but you talk about, yeah, tool, tool use, octopus. I mean, what? Just blows my mind. A fantastically interesting thing about octopuses is that their, their mind is not on our evolutionary trajectory. In other words, they did not inherit their ability to think and engage and interact and play and use tools from anything on our lineage. Whereas we inherited ours basically from fish, you know, all, all land animals have fish as their ancestors, but our closest ancestor, common ancestor with octopuses was basically a sea worm. So not not something that had a nervous system that we inherited. They, they evolved separately. So they octopuses are the closest thing on Earth to an alien intelligence. In other words, a an intelligence that shares very little with our intelligence architecture. In other words, our nervous system. Theirs is really very different. They have... Uh, we have a brain in one place and, and our central nervous system is centralized. It's not distributed. Theirs is distributed. They, they have kind of a brainish thing, but they have basically eight brains. The, the main one has their esophagus going through it and their arms basically can think independently and experience independently. So they're very different from us, and yet they can engage with us, they can play with us, they can look us in the eye. And um, that's a that's an incredible thing to ponder. There's a fantastic book about them that came out not long ago called Other Minds by a guy mm-hmm. named Peter Godfrey Smith. 
And I reviewed other minds for the New York Times book review. So if you want to get a brief sense of what the book is about, you can search for New York Times book review, my name, Carl Safina, and, and then the words other minds. And that book review is the first thing that comes up. Um, and okay. uh, Peter Godfrey Smith did a fantastic job thinking, th- thinking about um, what it means to, to have a mind, what it means to be on Earth with minds that evolved separately. Uh, super, super, super interesting. And, and, of course, you know, octopuses as animals are just um, amazing, amazing animals to be around. I've seen a few in the wild. Of course, I've seen them in aquariums as well. As yeah. well at like you know restaurants and stuff like that. Oh my goodness, are you are are you a vegetarian? Out of curiosity, strictly speaking, I'm not a vegetarian. I don't buy any meat from farmed animals, and that's because I think that farmed animals are made to live much more miserably than they are made to die. the 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 standards for their humane slaughter are a lot better than the standards for the rest of their entire lives. So I don't want to have anything to do with commercial animal farming. And, um, and I, I essentially don't ever buy any meat from farmed animals. Um, if I go someplace and it's somebody's home and that's what they've cooked for dinner, I usually will eat it. Um, I, you know, when, when I grew up, I, I, I was fed meat. Our family ate meat. It's it's not like it's a strange or weird thing to me. It's a pretty familiar thing to me. Um, but I don't want to I don't want to encourage it in the marketplace at all by choosing to buy it. I do catch fish. Um, fish are vertebrate animals, you know. And if you eat fish, you're certainly not a vegetarian. I go clamming a lot because I live on Long Island, so I can I can do these things, and I go clamming a lot. And it's my most intimate relationship with my own food is to go get some of it myself. We have a tiny vegetable garden, um, and you know, sort of sort of my phrase has become about what I eat is some from the soil, some from the sea, and none from the pens. That's mm. pretty much my approach. Yeah, interesting. I just wanted to ask you because I mean, you talk about you know the octopus and like what do we do in the TED talk? Well, we fry them, that type of stuff. So I just was yeah. out of my right, own curiosity. Right. We we have chickens and they we have four chickens. We usually oh, have about four chickens. They they lay up a storm, and we're very happy eating chicken eggs. That that also makes us non vegetarians. But we have no desire to kill the chickens. You know, after they get too old to stop laying you know then they're they're retired you know they're like uh we're very happy to have retired hens around and um uh the other thing is i i never buy milk either i think um dairy farming is really brutal mm-hmm. so to me, and our governor sorry go ahead yeah i mean to me actually dairy farming i i think Commercial dairy farming, I think, is always really brutal, whereas grass-fed beef at least have a nice life except for one day in hell. Um, I think in a way, I think in a way, dairy farming is actually is actually a lot tougher on those cows. Um, So anyway, I don't I don't buy milk either. So. 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't either at all. I don't even think humans like adult humans like we should not be drinking other species. Like milk, it doesn't make I, any I actually, sense. I I think I think milk is the most bizarre food form for us because I can't think of any other species that parasitizes the lactation of another species. There are a lot of species that simply kill other animals and eat them, but. To suck milk from a different species is is not done. It's just it's, it's a strange custom. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, mind you, I love cheese though. Anyway, so we can just I, I, talk. Well, I do love cheese. I I I don't buy I think it's a very guilty pleasure for me to buy cheese about once or twice a year. If we have company coming, I sometimes buy some cheese and I sometimes get a slice of pizza which has cheese on it, you know, but um, as far as thinking that it's a staple that you're always supposed to have milk in the refrigerator. No, I haven't done that. I haven't done that for really my entire adult life. So as soon as I started living on my own, I just, I just didn't buy milk anymore. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, thank you so much just for taking the time. Do you have any last minute words? I'm sorry I kept you over. We're like on. No, it's yeah, really okay. way past. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed speaking with you. I, I really appreciate your interest. I think, you know, your own your own work is really interesting in your ability and desire to help other people gain some more empathy for all these other lives that share the planet with us is a really a really fine thing. So I think, um, you know, we're sort of. Uh, two peas in a pod in a way, although we approach the work in, in different ways. But um, I have a feeling that we, we share a lot of similar feelings in our, our um, respect and our warmth for all these other creatures. So I appreciate your interest. One of the things right. that I'm trying to do in my work overall is find better strategies to reach large numbers of people and um, and help them love other animals, basically, because most of us who really do, when we were young, we had the ability to go wander around in some place unsupervised in some wild place and just go traipse around and fool around. And you can't take a million people to do that with you. So I'm trying to figure out how we can how we can help open up a lot more hearts to all these other animals. Heck yeah. And by the way, this podcast is a great platform too. Did you know we have a high listenership in Korea? <laughs> That's so interesting. What, how, why is that? I know. I, no idea. I thought it was a fluke, but they, they give me a map on my analytics and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so... That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Good for you. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much just for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And I hope to cross paths with you again in the future. Yeah, definitely. So let's keep talking and, and be sure to send me your mailing address right away before we forget about that. Yeah. All right. Okay. I will. Thank Sounds you so good. much. All right. All right. Bye-bye.